action. Bailey, and I'd like to welcome you to part two of AR Zone podcast number 19 on entanglements of oppression and liberation. The demographics of this particular movement are rather against you. If we, for example, take Steve Best's position, he would claim that the animal rights movement or the animal advocacy movement is largely white, largely bourgeois, you know, very kind of middle class base who wouldn't necessarily uh, be sympathetic towards socialist ideas. There are some racist elements as well. All of that seems to work against what you're aiming for. You know, when I when I wrote Animal Rights, Human Rights, I guess one of the things that prompted me and and I found disturbing was that uh, you know uh, animal rights uh, advocates uh, tended to think that the problem was largely one that was due to prejudice and they didn't connect it to, to uh, structural conditions and and they certainly didn't connect it to the capitalist system. So I guess one of the points that I made in that book and I, I dedicated two chapters uh, to economics was to show how the oppression of animals was deeply driven by uh, economic forces and quest uh, for profit, uh, both uh, amongst the um, uh, animal industrial complex and the hunting industry and the pharmaceutical industry and biomedical industry. I mean, it was all a quest for profits. So I guess I attempted to make the point that they've got to see that connection between this uh, this quest for profit and this awful oppression that was not just affecting animals, but was affecting devalued people throughout the world. I, I guess, you know, one of the issues was, um, and, and may well continue to be, that uh, people who were um, advocates for other animals tended disproportionately uh, to be young. And, and because of the issues with patriarchy that we just chatted about, uh, they tend disproportionately to be women. But I, I think, again, uh, we just need, to, again, to roll up our sleeves and we need to make uh, more forceful arguments and it's not going to be easy, as Helen you know, talked about, trying to raise issues and, and running into these um, white, educated male voices you know, who want to shut down the problem or, or do some kind of technological or easy diversion. But again, if we could emerge to a more, a more socialist system, then one of our biggest problems is educating people. And the mass media is one of the primary ways by, what that, by which that happens. And even through... Uh, uh, ed, uh, educational system here in the United States. I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, corporate control and emphasis on the status quo. But I think since uh, animal rights people are disproportionately young, I think, you know, and uh, hopefully being educated people, that, uh, you know, we can uh, continue to promote that point. Can I, I throw in a comment there in relation to um, activism and class politics, if you like? A lot of the work that I've done with uh, working class communities, low paid workers, etc., has, I guess, uncovered or conveyed some questions about how we think about activism. And when, and I'm, I'm really, I guess, speculating here, but when people talk about, you know, the animal advocacy movement being largely middle class and, and you know, the, the same 
description is even made of trade unions these days and, and the reality is that working class people are the least and vulnerable workers, marginalised workers are the least likely to be in, in trade unions. So just as a side note, I guess, you know, there's sometimes a, a reluctance or, or a kind of disparaging comments are made by trade unionists and even by the organisations themselves that the animal advocacy movement, animal rights is a middle class issue. And there's a, I, I won't go into the many ways in which I think that is a really um, spurious argument. But the reality is that trade unions themselves are increasingly middle class organisations. Not to say that there aren't some really good unions out there representing um, the working class. But in terms of this question of activism, you know, it's, it's interesting how we understand and measure activism. You know, many working class people and communities may not be formally involved with activist organisations or civil, civil organisations, NGOs, etc. But that isn't necessarily mean that they're not, don't have a deep concern or an interest or a desire even to, to do uh, or to be more active or to, who do maybe consider themselves as, as animal advocates in their personal views and, and behaviours. It's just that we don't necessarily pick them up. They don't necessarily... We know that working class people are less likely to join organisations than middle class um, people and um, people who have more time and, and money on their hands, I guess. So I think that in some ways the when we think about activism, we don't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily portray or provide an accurate picture of what's going on out there on the ground. An example came, of this came up in some interviews I was doing recently with low-paid workers about environmental issues in the workplace. And it was interesting that quite a few workers, without any prompting on this topic from me, wanted to talk about their interactions with other animals in the workplace. And one example that comes to mind is a cleaner that I interviewed who worked in a large metropolitan hospital. And part of his job involved having to clean out the laboratory where animals were being tested on and experiments were being conducted. And he conveyed, you know, the, the horror of, of that aspect of his job. And when I asked him if he'd ever tried to do anything about it, he, he conveyed that he was there wasn't a day went by that he wanted to just let the animals go or, or do something about, you know, the, the trauma that he was seeing. And he obviously was quite traumatised by witnessing that himself. But when I asked him if he'd done anything about it or thought about doing something about it, he said to me that he had tried to do something about environmental, like a, the, some toxic issues in a workplace um, that he thought were bad, uh, dangerous to public health in a previous job. And as a, for his troubles, he lost his job, was unemployed for five years following that, nearly lost his family, and that he decided that, you know, he wasn't going to make a stand on any issues unless his union was going to stand with him on it. But on these issues of the treatment of other animals in the workplace, the union, you know, it's, it's as I think as David said earlier, it's sort of still perceived by the union hierarchy as we'll deal with that after the revolution. It's a peripheral issue. And I think a lot of unionists are really, and, and even union members for that matter, don't really recognise the damage that those sorts of occupations do to workers as well as to other animals. So so while we might not consider that particular person to be an activist or he might, you know, he's obviously not in an animals uh, rights type organisation, um, he nonetheless, nonetheless is someone who would, under different circumstances perhaps, 
be considered, a, you know, an advocate and a supporter of animals, but facing very real constraints in his life and precariousness. So in terms of, you know, is this a middle class movement and what sort of opportunities might exist for alliance politics with the labour movement, etc. Again, I, I, I think we need to um, think outside the square a little bit and um, a bit more creatively and not make you know, not make assumptions or just take the statistics at face value. We need to think about what the lived reality of workers' lives is like and, and how we might connect with them. Because um, I think, you know, for a lot of people, while they might be very alienated from nature, have very alienated relationships with other animals, and I wouldn't say this about all workers, of course, but for many there is a core that it, core view or, or outlook which is deeply sympathetic and would like to be able to do something, but feel but people feel very powerless and, and vulnerable. And Helen, uh, just a, as a footnote you know, to this notion that the movement for animal rights is a middle-class movement, or specifically, it's been accused of being a white middle-class movement. Yeah. I was accused of that oh, uh, five or six years ago when I was talking to some fairly radical and politicized students at NEI College in the United States. Yeah. I, it, that was their position, and I suggested that that was problematic uh, because they, they maintained that to promote a vegan diet meant that there's so many people around the world who are forced to hunt and eat animals to survive. And while I noted in part that that, that was true, I suggested that was due because of the functionings of the capitalist system and how some areas have been developed and other areas have been purposefully un underdeveloped and, and exploited, and people there uh, continue to face a uh, various levels of oppression, but uh, a lot of hunting that goes on in the United States for particular is done for, it's done for recreation, and it's a billion-dollar industry in trying to get people to buy the latest technology to go out and, and track and kill other animals. And, and also, speaking of global hunger, I mean, increasing numbers of people around the world are facing hunger because uh, being pushed off the land as giant soy operations come in to raise feed for growing uh, numbers of CAFOs in China and Europe and ranching operations are expanding in areas like the Amazon rainforest and water resources are being diverted you know, for, for feed and meat production. So I guess I, I see a move toward a global plant-based diet is one, one of the most responsible things that we could do for indigenous people, other devalued people on the earth and people going hungry as opposed to shrugging off that idea as being somehow a white middle class um, agenda. One of the things that I've been, I mentioned earlier, been very interested in developments um, in terms of environmental justice, but also trying to, to learn more about the animal advocacy movements in the global south as a kind of counterpoint, I guess, to those charges of that only the middle class have the luxury of caring about other animals or, or doing things differently in terms of plant-based diets, etc. Going back to the earlier discussion about the necessity in terms of all the interconnecting oppressions to both recognise and be somehow find ways to relinquish privilege, whether it's, you know, white privilege or class privilege or whatever it might be. You know, I've kind of been quite interested in, in developments in the global south where communities 
are saying, and it's also happening, I have to say, here in, in Australia as well, in Indigenous communities, saying no to supposed jobs growth economic development programs that local communities understand will desecrate their local environments and, and of course, have disastrous effects for other animals. And we have, I think, there are illustrations of people who are often, again, the most vulnerable in, in the world, really, who are prepared to say no to material advantage, even when they are desperately poor, because they hold and understand, hold a, a greater or a sense of an intrinsic value of the environment and other animals that is more important than the, you know the short-term gains and they and they also of course are able to see through the corporate spin about all the supposed benefits that are going to accrue to communities when they know through harsh experience that quite often companies global corporations come into communities you know essentially rape the resources and and impoverish the people even more and then leave with all the money in their own pockets yes. so i think you know those those sorts of examples to me are quite instructive and we need to pay more attention to them. And I'm thinking of specifically an example in the Kimberley region of Northern Australia, which is um, an Indigenous controlled area by the Kimberley Land Council. Now that there's a dispute at the moment, which is tearing the Indigenous community apart actually, by coal seam gas operators, uh, Woodside in particular, I think they call in, in the States and elsewhere fracking. Um, yes. and Indigenous Land Council has signed up to this, but many other members of the community have said, no, this is going to destroy our country and, um, you know, wreak havoc on other animals in the community as well. And so it's, as I said, it's really turning those communities on each other. So to me, they are living examples of people saying no to species privilege and even to economic opportunities and having a different moral economy in play. I see elements of this in my research with working class women in particular, but also working class communities. And I just want to say for the record, I'm not trying to romanticise the working classes, you know, all noble defenders of, of other animals, etc. But in terms of looking for ways forward, there are a range of, of areas that both researchers and, and activists need to explore. You working class romanticiser you. Oh, yes, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Can't have that. <laughs> I'd like to hear both of your opinions on how much you think we should be compromising with other social justice movements or any other movements. The concern I have is that alliances that we forge would require us to compromise a great deal more than most other people, most other movements. Most vegans would support the end of all oppression, whereas many other movements won't incorporate the end of exploitation of the of other animals as part of their philosophy. Like I said earlier, I was uh, much encouraged by the Occupy Wall Street movement that started uh, several weeks ago and has spread to many parts of the world. And if it weren't for teaching and uh, trying to take care of a household of rescued animals, some of whom have various ailments and uh, trying to finish some other obligations, I would be there with them. But I was very discouraged, you know, when their food of, of choice is uh, cheese pizza. And, mm. uh, and and people were, you know, sending them all this money and they were getting all these cheese pizzas delivered. So I, I guess in one sense, if I was there, I would be occupying the, the square with them, but I would be holding a sign and talking to them about, you know, the implications of eating that cheese pizza, you know, for themselves, for the animals, for the environment. So, and, and if I were able to go, you know, I would raise that issue, but I think I would stand with them 
and standing against capitalism, but I, I think I would turn my back when they were eating their cheese pizzas and I, was, I would argue with them. So in, in terms of entering into uh, agreements or, or manifestos, I think that would be problematic. But if there's a group standing up against uh, racism or sexism or, or, or capitalism, I'll, I'll march with them that day. But uh, we may have some more difficult struggles uh, because, again, I, I think um, a half-stepping and particular welfare types of, uh, of reforms, you know, which, which in, the, in the past I participated in and now I very much regret, especially at my own university. I helped to establish an IACUC, an Animal Care and Use Committee, and that has actually increased the number, the amount of animal um, uh, experimentation going on there. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. I, I think we need to stand with our brothers and sisters around the world, especially in challenging capitalism, but we need to engage them in some hard conversations about animal oppression. Yeah, I agree, David. And in actual fact, there has been some coverage of vegan perspectives on the Occupy Wall Street. In fact, um, I think I posted something on, on my Facebook wall from the Vegan Animal Liberation Alliance, it was called. And there was a blog entry called Occupy Wall Street, a vegan perspective. And I think that that was based on the idea of supporting them and yet taking them on for, for, on that issue. Very good. I'm happy to hear that. I, I saw that blog post as well, Roger, and found it quite interesting. And, and I think I might have posted a link to it on AR Zone, actually. And in the occupations that are happening in Australia at the moment, um, there was also another, another post from one of the AR Zone members um, from Occupy Adelaide. And she's apparently sending out flyers and to try and raise these issues, you know, presumably taking much the same approach that David's just outlined. And I've certainly raised it, although I'm not physically there uh, in Occupy, at Occupy Sydney, I was there on the first day, but I, I live five hours from Sydney, so I'm, I'm not there on a permanent basis. But I've certainly been trying to keep that issue on the agenda and saying, well, the recognition of the exploitation of non-human animals is recorded in the um, the New York Charter, uh, New York, sorry, um, Declaration at Occupy Wall Street and, you know, are we make, please make sure that we, we don't lose sight of these issues as well. And, you know, I deliberately made a point of donating fruit to the, <laughs> to the occupation <laughs> to encourage uh, different eating practices and, you know, we all know pizza's no good for them anyway, so... On so, that declaration, Helen, are, yes. are you saying is that bit where it says something about uh, we have po poisoned the food supply through negligence, uh, undermined the farming system through monopolisation, we have property off the torture, confinement and cruel treatment of countless animals and actively yeah. hide yeah. these practices? Yeah, that, that's part of the, it's kind of like yeah. an official declaration, isn't it? It is the declaration of grievances and so I, I was you know, looking to see whether or not these questions, when, when Occupy Wall Street first started happening, you know, and I, like a lot of people was glued to my live stream <laughs> watching it all. And so I was really surprised actually to see that there was anything in there about, in the declaration about non-human animals. And I sort of figured, well, obviously someone or some group of people are in there. And I, I did also note that they had an animal rights working group. So it's obviously not just one person, you know, um, rattling the can. Um, so that was kind of heartening, although, you know, I'm, I have to say a bit sceptical about how much traction it'll get in the, in the big picture in the long term. But, you know, it's, it's better than having nothing there, I suppose. 
But in, in answer to or response to Carolyn's questions around compromise, you know, to be perfectly honest, as I said at the outset, this is all relatively new to me and it's something that I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I could I could imagine, a, <laughs> I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but I can imagine a point arising where, you know, I've given it a good go at trying to do something in the trade union movement, which is, you know, my activist homeland, if you like, and finding I'm just not getting anywhere and, and that anthropocentrism is just too deep, there is too much compromise and having to make a call about whether to walk away from it, which would be a pretty big personal decision for me. But I feel, you know, strongly enough that I would consider doing that. But as David said, I guess at this particular point, and maybe it's big, you know, more seasoned activists in the animal advocacy movement may have reached um, the conclusion that it's just not a fruitful line of endeavour, you know, many years ago. But for where I'm at personally, you know, I, I guess I'm still willing to give them, give it a shot in terms of seeing what we can do on the animal rights front in terms of linkages with the labour movement. There may be some possibilities to work with sections of the animal advocacy movement. And I've been in touch recently with several groups. One is Humane Research Australia. The second one is Medical Advances Without Animals, MORWA, which is based in Canberra. And the other group is uh, uh, somehow associated with Animals Australia and it's called the Animal Justice Fund, which appears to be a philanthropic fund that has been set up to encourage employees as well as others, but it seems to be focusing on employees to report instances or, or any witnessing of animal cruelty in the workplace and they're offering between five thousand and thirty thousand dollars rewards which I've not come across anything like that before and I had hoped to speak to them in more detail before this discussion as to the extent if at all they've done any work with trade unions on this matter and if there's been any take-up of those incentives so um, again the, the the group medical advances without animals I've been trying to drive I guess a, a positive message so in terms of promoting replacement technology of animals, the use of other animals in, in higher education research in particular. They have a range of ways in which they do that in, through scholarships, etc. But I'm told that there's also about to be the establishment at the Australian National University of a centre which focuses on the development of replacement technologies. And I'm told that while there are a range of these sorts of institutions and organisations in Europe and perhaps North America that focus supposedly on the three R's in research, which for those who aren't familiar, are a reduction in the use of animals, a replacement of, of, of animals wherever possible, or refinement, the third one, refinement of, of processes, research processes. What I'm told from them is that in most most instances, other organisations in other parts of the world focus on refinement and reduction and there's comparatively little done in terms of replacement technologies. So this Australian initiative is supposedly going to focus its efforts on replacement technologies. So, um, you know, I guess trying to, as you see, in response to your question, Carolyn, about compromise, what I'm trying to do is to find synergies, if you like, or overlaps between sections of the animal advocacy movement and the labour movement. Just a final point, when, in contacting those organisations, each one of them, when I said, look, I'm ringing as a, a member of the executive of the National Tertiary Education Union and I'm you know, trying to do something about raising the profile and finding ways to, to work with the animal advocacy movement. And in each case, they 
seems to me that they, from their response, that they'd one never thought about it before, and two, it was the first time anyone from a union had ever contacted them. Well, that's certainly the impression that they gave me, and they were excited that someone from the union had uh, contacted them and keen to continue the conversation. So. Perhaps that is a bit of an, an illustration that we really haven't done the hard yards in exploring what's possible. But as I say, I, I have a healthy scepticism about what might be achieved from such a, those sorts of efforts. But for, for now, I'm at least willing to give it a go. Thank you. I'd be interested to hear, Helen, if you hear back from the Animal Justice Fund. Yes. Well, I, I anticipate hearing back from them in the next uh, couple of days, actually. So I'll, I'll keep you posted. Thank you. When you all consider the ideas that we've been talking about and, and the way forward, if someone were to say that what we ought to be doing is not focusing on animal issues per se, but on focusing on these larger issues of capitalism itself and the structures that are created to support the kind of oppression and exploitation that seems inherent in the world, does that make sense? From In other words, are animal activists going about this the wrong way and trying to treat a symptom rather than trying to treat the root cause? It's a good question, Tim. Uh, I, I think actually we need to struggle on both levels. You know, I don't think capitalism is going to give up easy and it's going to be a long, hard haul to transcend it towards something more humane and, and rational and just. And that oppression of animals only continues to grow. So I, I think you know we need to, to strive as much as we can uh, to push an abolitionist agenda and, amongst other things, uh, do public education and try to add more people to the growing ranks of vegan. But uh, then conversely, uh, we need to realize, as you note, that you know capitalism is underlying is, is underlying you know it's a driving force of all this oppression. So we need you know, to link hands, you know, with those who are opposing this system at at every opportunity and push forward and uh, try to educate uh, others in the um, animal uh, advocacy movement. I pretty much would agree with that in terms of uh, I I don't think at all it's a case of we should at all take the approach as was suggested when women's issues were for, was first raised and Indigenous issues that, you know, we'll deal with those matters after we've dealt with capitalism. I, to my mind, the struggles are, are interconnected, as David has pointed out, and instinctively I kind of feel, as we did with the women's movement and the Indigenous movement, although they, to my, to my way of thinking, are unfinished projects, very much unfinished when it comes to Indigenous issues in this country, that we need to find the common ground. We need to find where the interconnections are. And I really don't think in the Australian context, at least we've even begun to ask the question. So the challenge is both for the animal advocacy movement, but also for other social movements, human liberation movements, to find, to find the overlaps. Part of the um, difficulty, I suppose, and perhaps this goes to... Um, you know, my, my experiences as a relatively new participant in the Australian animal advocacy movement, I guess the point I was just making is that not only in terms of those three organisations I've mentioned, but other, other sections and organisations that I've tried to reach out to and say, hi, I'm a labour researcher, union, you know, activist official, how can, can we work with you? And quite often I haven't got a response at all. They don't know how to answer the question. Maybe they don't want to answer the question, and, and I can understand the arguments for that. But then when I have got a reaction, it's usually been, well, gee, we've never really thought about it before. Helen, as you said, you're relatively new to the um, Australian animal advocacy community. What have been some of your observations 
from the perspective of a, both like a, a rural Australian and also as a labour activist. Mm. Well, I guess just as, as I was just saying, what I found is, rel- I, uh, to be honest with you, I haven't found a single <laughs> organisation or instance apart from the work of the meat workers on the live export trade yep. of I haven't found any examples historically or contemporary of how those two movements have tried to work together or found a way. So to me, it's kind of, it's either an impossible question or it's completely unexplored territory. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that says something about, well, it certainly says something about the labour movement and its shortcomings, but perhaps it also says something about the animal advocacy movement. And I guess one of the criticisms I'm I'm frequently making of the labour movement, and I, I pointed to this earlier in my observations about socialist organisations in Australia, is that we are, the, the labour aristocracy, if you like, the, the, the officialdom of trade unions is, I think, still quite out of touch <coughs> with what is going on on the ground and in communities. And I'm not at all disparaging those. There are some very good unions who are... And, Interestingly, they generally represent the lower paid workers, but there are some really good unions out there with good union density who are engaged, but there is a whole lot of others that don't do a good job um, of engaging members on the ground. And maybe, you know, there's, I think it's, I'm too new to it all to, to make that sort of criticism, but it's it's possible um, from my initial observations of the animal advocacy movement that it's just not embedded in community experience very much. I'm just thinking, I live in a, a small town in rural New South Wales. It's a, an old railway town, very much a working class town, 1,200 people outside a satellite city of, of 100,000 half an hour away and I you know just in the dealings that I have the only animal advocacy activity out here is the RSPCA and um, the Wildlife Rescue Service and we you know they do great work in many ways but they of course have limitations from an abolitionist perspective so there are very few opportunities really for your average citizen in rural Australia who may care quite deeply about these things to have any sort of engagement. I understand, though, that there are significant resource constraints that the animal advocacy movement and other social movements face. But in my experience as, as, a, as a sociologist, a researcher, etc., and and with a whole range of sort of political organisations, those organisations that aren't embedded in community experience in lived realities of, of working life usually don't get very far. They remain pretty isolated and they don't get the kind of public traction that they would ideally seek to have. So, And I don't want to at all understate the difficulties of doing you know, becoming embedded in communities and so forth. But, you know, maybe this is one of the, hopefully, one of the upsides of the Occupy movement is that it is trying to break away from conventional political formations and parties and trade unions and just reach out to, I think they use the term Main Street in the US. We don't really use that term in Australia, but <laughs> reaching out to, to ordinary ordinary citizens. So to me, that's the big challenge if we're going to see real change. <laughs> I wanted to ask David about language. I wanted to ask David about his use of the term other animals and why that's so important, why language in general is so important. It seemed to me that 
one of the uh, primary forces that tends to enable and promote uh, any type of oppression, and in this case, animal oppression, is, is these uh, devaluative terms where animals, uh, cows become beef and, and pigs become pork or bacon. And I, I think those are industry terms. And when we raise people and, and they see cows and they think in terms of cattle and, and they see they see chickens and they think poultry, I, I think that whole mindset simply reinforces this very species of society. And it, uh, people tend to have their minds closed at a very early age. They distinguish themselves between you know the other inhabitants on the planet. So uh, in, in my work, I've tried to... Um, to refrain from those words when I use them I put them in quotes or if they're in a citation I try to put it in italics I try to talk about other animals just to bridge that gap that has been purposefully maintained that there's humans and then there are animals I guess when I talk in terms of other animals it's just to try to give the reader or the listener a little bit of a jolt you know that we're animals too and we're all inhabitants of the planet, and at least in, in some small way to try to counter that dominant uh, ideological paradigm that uh, the, other, the other animals are simply here as resources for human use. I agree with you, David. I use other animals for the same reasons you do. David, do you find resistance from people when you talk that way? I mean, if, you're, if you're talking to a group of people who aren't already sympathetic to your ideas, do you find that they resist that use of language? No, just publishers. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of uh, publishers, uh, David, when you met us in Dublin and uh, people still talk fondly about our meeting uh, there in, in that very noisy pub, you talked about you were working on a concept called uh, d- domestication, I think it was. Can you can you give us an update on, on, on what you were talking about then? Yeah, I, I love you know, meeting with with the animal rights group there in, in Dublin. Uh, I think I'll always cherish that meeting. That was wonderful uh, to meet you and Bertie and the, uh, the other activists. And, I, and I've got a photo hanging here in my office uh, to commemorate that meeting. But uh, one of the things I, I uh, had a chance to, to share was I was working on a new book that was prompted in part by the popularity of this book by, um, uh, I think his name is Jared Diamond, a book called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, in which he acknowledges um, human uh, exploitation of other animals. I don't, I don't think he actually he doesn't acknowledge exploitation. He acknowledges how the use was has been closely tied to the uh, development of civilization. Pretty much praises human use of animals, and the reader comes away thinking that if it weren't for human use of other animals, then we might not well have become civilized. I've always been irked by that book and the fact that it's. it's uh, They even made a documentary about it that's widely uh, seen here in the United States in the high schools and even at the university level. So my recent work uh, that I've struggled with publishers about the the use of some words, I tend to challenge that the word domestication, which I suggest has taken on a a, a benign uh, character. And that, that again, it, it tends to be a word that tends to reinforce uh, animal oppression. So, and I argued that animals have actually been desecrated through their exploit, exploitation and manipulation o- over the centuries. So, I created a word, uh, domestication, 
to use in, in lieu of uh, domestication. And then in that book, I simply did a, it's more uh, primarily a historical look at the way animals uh, have been uh, exploited over the centuries and how that exploitation has been very deeply entangled with the large-scale violence, war, and in no small part, massacres and genocides of indigenous peoples in various parts of the world. Then I, I tie a domestication to some of the most critical issues uh, facing the planet today, which includes the uh, the finite resources uh, that are being plundered to try to keep the animal industrial complex going, how the animal industrial complex contributes to global warming, and how we're moving into a, a period of scarcity, and how it looks like that domestication will be one of the primary factors that may be responsible for regional, if not international, warfare. The primary struggle with that book they wanted me to decouple my analysis of capitalism from the analysis of animal oppression, which I wouldn't do. But the, most of the argument came up with uh, putting quotes around certain words and the neologism itself, domestication, uh, stalled the book for months. That's a shame. But you, you are now back on track, is that right? Yeah, it, it looks like they finally, uh, they, they've given in. So it looks like the book is finally now going into production at uh, Columbia University Press. That speaks directly to what you said about the role of media in the reproduction of these same problems, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly both in the role of media and then also the, the university itself. I thought I would have less trouble with the university press, but it ended up being, it was stalled out much longer you know, than my earlier book. Uh, yeah, so you're absolutely right, both in terms of media and in terms of university, which um, those who have most of what there is to get, you know, continue to exercise a tremendous amount of influence, if not control. David, I'd like to ask one more question, if I can, before we finish, about a concern that I have with the argument about how capitalism in itself creates inequality and oppression. The concern I have is that it's, that seems true at some point that individuals off the hook as if people are powerless to do the right thing because the structure of society prevents them from being able to do so? That's uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I look back at myself and uh, even when I said earlier, when I had access to a university education and, and then I had uh, become radicalized and then I became a, a, an activist and a tenant organizer, and I was willing to march in any uh, uh, any demonstration that came along, but I was absolutely in the dark about uh, speciesism. I hadn't taken one course, picked up one book, had one conversation with anybody that said, you know, the way that we treat animals is wrong, and, and by the way, it's connected to all of these other these other forms of oppression. When I was sitting on that hillside in Madison, Wisconsin, back in 1983, I mean, I was just. I thought, how could I have been just so totally, even, you know, going through um, all of these years of university, how could I be so totally blinded, you know, to this level of oppression and participate in it? So certainly, going back you know, to Tim's comment, you know, the, the media and education and other uh, primary sources of socialization, you know, have all been crafted to format that point of view that uh, other animals don't count and are mere resources. But I guess, you know, I tell my students that when they come into the class that, you know, they're not vegan or, or and, and I say, well, I'd be surprised if you were. But, you know, when the course is over and now that you know, now you have some responsibility. You know, now you have this information on your shoulders and you need to decide if you're going to be part of the problem or part of the solution. So I think if we, again, could develop a more democratic society with more democratic media and education and more people are enlightened and they're given more opportunities, 
then I think, you know, that when we, we can begin to hold them personally more responsible. But there are a lot of people who, who know the issues, and especially if there's money to be made, you know, they continue to do the oppression. I think it was Upton Sinclair that said, you know, it's hard to convince a person to do something if their paycheck depends upon them not understanding it and not wanting to do it. So, so I, I put more emphasis on, on the system than individuals, but once, once the, the individual has access to the education and opportunities to behave differently, then I think we can become more critical. Thank you. What, what's the response that you get from your students when you put that responsibility on them? Uh, I, I think the response they'd really like to give me comes after they get their grade, <laughs> and I don't see them. So, you know, to be candid, I don't think that most of the students who leave the class uh, go on to become vegan. Some do, and I hear from them, and, and, and we maintain, I maintain contact with a number of them. But I, I think that they come into this class, and it's all kind of cubbyhole, and when they leave the classroom, everything else around them, I mean everything, is telling them not to consider that, so they tend to pinch it hole, and then they just go on with the other aspects of their life, and they, they, they go to lunch, and they go back to the, uh, you know, to the corporate-provided slaughterhouse fair. So I think if there was more in their lives and in society to support what I'm seeing, I would expect more, but, um, but I'm kind of glad to get, to get the response I am getting. You're listening to AirZone Podcast Number 19, Part 2, Entanglements of Oppression and Liberation, with Professor David Nybert and Dr. Helen Masterman-Smith. So I'd like to ask one final question that, that I have, and I'm just wondering if the two of you can speak to maybe what you think the world will look like, say, 50 years from now, if you can put on your uh, fortune teller outfits. <laughs> And give me a sense of what you think the future holds. <laughs> I'll go first, if you like. <laughs> it's it's an I easy gotta, question. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, crystal balling. I got to say, I'm pretty scared about the future, and I know a lot of particularly young people are as well. I I'm, I think there is a possibility for change, and you know, we do what we can in in the time that we have on this this earth to drive positive change, both individually and collectively. But I have to say that the, the forces reigned against us are um, incredibly powerful. And, you know, we have seen countless millions and billions of, of humans and other animals destroyed over the past five centuries or so under this system. So, you know, I, I think it would be <laughs> quite idealistic to think we're going to turn that around in the next 50 years. However, you know, the culmination of, of environmental and social crises that are emerging... I'm hopeful we'll give it a good shake in terms of trying to turn things around, but I've got to say I'm not overly optimistic. I guess I would say ditto you know, to uh, Helen's comment. Yeah, I, I think global protest aside, uh, again, the, you know, that 1% exert a tremendous amount of control, and, and when things get hard for them, they're very good at coming up with the diversionary tactics and, and creating fear amongst their populations you know, to try to shift focus. But I have to think, going the way that we're going, within the next 50 years, we're going to see growing crisis, growing scarcity, uh, the world's getting warmer. And I think if we make that transition, it's probably going to be prompted in no small part by, uh, by these growing crises and the inability of capitalism to, to even sustain itself. And then all the people on the left, all of us in the movement to create justice for um, for other animals, you know, need to be there, you know, to point the way from there. I was just going to ask Tim what his thoughts on his question were. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, give us yeah. a um, uh, ray of hope. I, well, 
I'm I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> Mr. Optimism, come on, Tim. <laughs> no, I, I can't. I think that when we look at the history of struggles, if we just look at the history uh, in the United States with the struggle against first slavery that in its institutionalized form took 250 years to eradicate, and we're still dealing with uh, racism, whether it's institutionalized and overt or whether it's still an undercurrent of our society 150 years after the abolition of slavery, um, 50 years after major civil, li- civil rights legislation was passed. You know, that's 400 years, and we're still and we're still grappling with that. And so, my thought is that it's a long, slow climb up a very tall mountain. But I think that if we know that what we're aiming for ultimately is is what has to happen in a sense of fairness and justice, then we have to then we have to keep climbing. I, I don't think that the world will look remarkably different for for my grandchildren uh, when they're my age than it looks to me right now. Well, thanks for that, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that happy note. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> it's a nice way to finish off, isn't it? It wasn't really a kumbaya moment, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think what about you, Ronnie? Are you pessimistic or optimistic? No, I'm 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 just kind of trying to be positive. I think you've just gotta be positive, try your best and go for it. Because if you're kinda of negative about it, it can stop it happening. Because it can stop people from even trying if people think well you know it's not it, me doing something's not going to make any difference and then maybe they won't do it so you've got to you've got to put forward a kind of positive have a positive approach in order to encourage other people to to do things as well yeah. one of the questions that we talked about that hasn't been asked but i was just reminded of by what by what ronnie just said that people might think david that the way that you talk about this problem makes the problem so big that that Ronnie's fear would come true that people would say oh my god it's not just that we have to that we have to go vegan but we've got to we've got to change the entire structure of society and so uh, like people say about global warming it's too big a problem for me as an individual to deal with so forget it I just won't even care is that danger real do you think you know or do we have to tell people the true nature of the problem if we're ever going to get anywhere yeah, I've seen that frustration expressed, you know, when I've spoken to groups in the past. So I, I think um, I simply need to learn, you know, to pitch it a bit differently and perhaps in a more positive way. I think it's the point needs to be made that uh, capitalism is the basic force underlying underlying the problem and enabling it to continue and keep keeping people blind to what's going on. So we need to put that on the table and we need to make that part of their agenda. But So we don't necessarily want to dilute their activism or, or their hopefulness or the fact that they're positive. But we need, I think, to send a message that we need to recognize that this this is a probably a long-term issue that we all need to grapple with and look to make alliances wherever we can, even though that is difficult at times. But it doesn't mean, you know, that we can't continue you know, from day to day, you know, try to make, uh, you know, uh, try to move in positive directions, you know, for the, uh, for all the oppressed of the earth, you know, and, uh, and in this case, uh, particularly the uh, other animals. I can maybe just add something to that. I think that that's... Um really important and certainly in terms of the conversations I have with students, um, fellow unionists and and others just in everyday life um, is really, as I've kind of tried to illustrate in some of the comments today, about finding the openings, the possibilities, the spaces where things might, alternative ways of doing things and seeing things and living 
um, might be identified. And I think, you know, th this kind of speaks to what some people call total liberation theory, the, you know, the liberation of all, including other animals. And um, while for some that might seem overwhelming, I think we can talk about it in terms of opportunity in that it's about solidarity across struggles and that can can potentially reinforce one another. And we've seen lots of good examples of how how that is, has happened. For example, you know, in the trade union movement, notwithstanding it being an unfinished project, the trade union movement has been a really important supporter of in, the Indigenous struggle in this country, for example, and done, has done what it, what it can to support that. So, you know, it presents opportunities and I think we need to keep focusing on those sorts of dimensions and, as I've said earlier, on finding ways to privilege voices for the Indigenous, for women, for the working class, for animals, other animals as well, and how we can reorientate the narratives and, and the strategies and tactics that we employ in the more powerful civic organisations, if you like, to have them. And to me, that's actually quite exciting. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, I look forward to speaking to and working with uh, sections of, of the union movement and, and the community that are, are on the margins and finding ways to, to join those dots and connect them. So while, while I think the, as you've indicated, Tim, you know, there's a, a massive mountain in front of us, we're only going to climb it together. And that's that's where we re regain our humanity and over find ways to overcome our alienation from nature and from, from other animals, I think. And, you know, that's a good news story. That's a good message to send to people. But I, I am reminded, though, I was at a, a climate change activist conference a year or so ago now, and we had a member, a prominent member of the Greens Party in Australia saying, addressing this question, and, you know, she was saying, we just have to have a positive message and let people know that we can find out, find ways to continue to, to maintain our standard of living, but in a greener way. And I think that was... I was a bit surprised, but I think that's a dangerous message in going to David's point. We have to be real with one another and in our own lives about the changes we have to make. And this goes, I guess, to the earlier points I was making about we need to learn about different moral economies. And there's a lot of research on happiness out there. And uh, there's a, an Australian writer, Clive Hamilton, has written a book. It's quite prominent here in Australia called Affluenza and the limits of material acquisition for personal happiness and that we need to, you know, look for other other sources of happiness and fulfilment. So on that individual level, I guess going a bit to Carolyn's question, you know, we, we need to discover new ways of living and thinking about ourselves. Is there anything else anyone would like to discuss before? Well, could, could I just say that no, nobody seems to care about what Roger thinks about, about that. that issue. <laughs> No, 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 nobody's interested in <laughs> That's not true, you're, Roger. You're right for the very first time. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. You... No, well, I, well, I, well, I'm finished then. I'm, I'm done. No, I, I, I just want to go now. Thank you. I'm done. You... Roger, you've been doing this for a long, long time. What do you think? To, to answer the question, I, I tend to agree with Ronnie, actually. I did go through a period of depression and um, very pessimistic about things. And then I said to myself, well, you know, you could be wrong. I answered back saying, well, yeah, you're right there, Rog. And um, I've kind of been on that um, situation since there, that the fact that I do have pessimistic feelings about things. And I do think, obviously, it's a long haul situation, obviously. But 
you know, when when I start to feel, you know, very down about it, I just keep reminding myself that I could be wrong and so carry on fighting and uh, be as positive as possible. Kind of go with Ronnie on that one, I think. That's good. <laughs> well, we have to agree on something, eh, Ron? We do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great we finally found an area of agreement. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we, we can't agree on hairstyles, can we? Not really, no. Yours is terrible. <laughs> at least I've got one. <laughs> I've just got a very wide passing, that's all. <laughs> I guess doing okay. nothing is, is not an option, is the thing. Absolutely. So, so what, what about Carolyn? Because I don't think Carolyn's... Uh... I actually change all the time. I tend to be the same as what Ronnie and Roger said. I try to be very, very positive. But... I, you know, I don't think we have 50 years. I don't think we have anything close to 50 years. I think the situation is a lot more urgent than that. I do try to stay positive, but sometimes I find it very difficult. I think the challenge is, is recognizing the severity of the problem and acknowledging, as Helen said, how radically different a vegan world would be from, and we've talked about this before, I think some people in a way just think to themselves that a vegan world would be just like the one we have now except we wouldn't be eating other animals but that that's not at all how it would be it's a radical change from the way that we conceive of ourselves and of the way that we interact in the world and how you know the, this notion of nature as opposed to man-made you know which is which is i think a false idea in the first place so i think the challenge is remain hopeful but recognize how radical the idea is Years ago, when I was organizing socialists in St. Louis, I, I had a conversation with this uh, old socialist, and, uh, and we talked about this very issue. And, and he said, from his perspective, he says, it's, it's like a train. He says, and this train's moving through time, and it's a very important train. And he says, sometimes you're going uphill, and it's very difficult to keep the train going, but you just have to keep, don't let it stop, just keep it going, because at some point, it's going to pick up speed. And it's going to be there. So that's that's what I think about when I get tired, is we just have to keep this train moving. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank both David and Helen for spending their time with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion, and I expect that a lot of people will get quite a bit out of it. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Thank and you thank you on much. behalf of all AOZone members, uh, Helen and David. No trouble. It's been uh, great joining you.